Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode five of the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Rose Schmeek who graduated with a BS in health and physical education from Westchester University in 1985 with a concentration in athletic training and from Arcadia University in 1987 with a master of science in physical therapy. In 2004, she received a doctorate in health science from the University of St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, Dr. Rose Schmieg is a licensed athletic trainer and physical therapist. She's worked in numerous outpatient physical therapy settings with athletes and the general population. She instructed orthopedic physical therapy at Howard University from 1992 to 1995. Dr. Schmieg came to Shenandoah in 1995 to instruct physical therapy. In 2001, she became the founding program director for Shenandoah University Division of Athletic Training, Master of Science in Athletic Training program. In 2010, she founded the Shenandoah University's Master's Certificate in Performing Arts Medicine. Dr. Schmieg is an NSCA certified strength and conditioning coach, an ISSN certified sports nutritionist, and she has had a manual therapy certificate from the Institute of Physical Therapy in St. Augustine. She's an active member of NATA, ISSN, PAMA, and IADAMS. This is someone who's very near and dear to my heart because she's not only a professor, but is now a colleague of mine. Uh, Rose, we're very happy to have you on the show. Um, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you, Jake. It was my pleasure. Um, great to be able to give back and get on this podcast. So, Rose, I know we we kind of went through most of your um, like educational background and kind of that you came over to Shenandoah after being at Howard for a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, your journey into the realm of academics and going from a clinician to uh, an instructor? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I always have to start with the fact um, that I'm a Philly girl. So um, from the Philly area, huge sports nut, um, love the performing arts. And um, just a quick tidbit, um, I thought that I was going to get a bachelor's in English from University of Pennsylvania. And when an Ivy League school didn't accept me, I wasn't sure what to do. And then I was playing volleyball in high school, 
dislocated a patella, ended up as a patient at Temple Sports Medicine. And so I hate to even say these numbers out loud, but that was around 1978. And why I bring that up is really in the 70s, it's when the term sports medicine had become a thing, because now we're about to be talking about performing arts medicine today. So, but it was in that clinic, I was treated by orthopedic surgeons and athletic trainers, and I got to a little idea of this new realm. So that pain at the pathway for my bachelor's, I went to Westchester University, in that era, you couldn't major in athletic training. So I majored in health and physical education, but took a concentration of courses in clinic and athletic training and ended up becoming a licensed athletic trainer. Then on to PT school. And upon finishing, uh, my first job was in Baltimore at uh, Greater Baltimore Sports Medicine Center. So I was working as much like yourself, a general population orthopedic physical therapists with a sports clientele that came in. And then I was using my athletic training um, to go out and sort of consult with a gymnastics club, a fairly high level club actually back in the day in Maryland called the Rebounders. And so I did that for five to seven years and um, was really pretty happy doing that. And, but I knew that there was something more for me and you get these junctures in your life sometimes that make you change courses. And I lost a parent unexpectedly. And so I left my job for a month to spend some time to help my mom kind of get back on track. And in that time I was reading, uh, again, but this was pre-internet, so I was reading newspaper articles for jobs and I found that uh, Howard University was looking for somebody to instruct orthopedic physical therapy. And you know, I'm an East Coast girl. I'm like, hmm, that's just three hours down the road. I was already actually only an hour considering I was already working in Baltimore before I had left that job. So I applied thinking they'll never hire me. I haven't taught one minute in my life. They hired me. (laughs) So (laughs) I ended up in education and it couldn't have been a more perfect fit because um, the person who was the primary orthopedic instructor uh, was from Australia and she was only in the U.S. for a couple of years because of an embassy job that her husband had. And this again, just is a historical thing for those of you in the rehab professions. This was the early 90s and manual therapy was just picking up steam in physical therapy, but it was big time in Australia. So as I began teaching orthopedics, the person that was sort of mentoring me was like, hey, Rose, do you know how to do this Maitland mobilization? Do you know? And I didn't know what she was talking about. And I realized, you know, I was schooled right by my parents. You know, you, you, you show up and you learn how to do what you're supposed to do. And so I bought all the Maitland books. I started to go to manual therapy courses. And so I would just nod when Catherine, my mentor, said, do you know how to do this? I'd say yes. I'd read about it at night. I'd practice. And I found I kind of self-trained along with then going to get my St. Augustine certification on how to be a manual therapist and really kind of grew into instructing um, through my first years at Howard. And then I just realized... Um, I needed to figure out a place that I would get my own doctorate and a school that would become flexible to allow me to teach and do that. And that's in a a very brief nutshell how I ended up moving westward to Shenandoah. And so then got to Shenandoah and actually uh, was again assigned with teaching orthopedic PT, therapeutic exercise. Um, But while at Shenandoah, part of my interview, they, they kind of dangled, you know, we think one day we might bring an athletic training program to Shenandoah. And in the back of my mind, I always wanted to get back to my roots, my, my first health professions degree. And so I really have lucked out in that I've enjoyed the majors I've picked in college. I kind of moved from clinic to teaching 
and always while teaching, I've been doing part-time orthopedic care and then landed at Shenandoah. And after about, um, uh, like, uh, it's about seven years, uh, the opportunity to start that athletic training program came. So it's nice when you can change jobs, but not institutions. You know, I basically just went a mile and a half across town and where another building was and became the founding director of the athletic training program. Little segue, that office that I had when I started the AT program was next to the dance department. And so while I was creating the program, writing the curriculum, and then slowly getting that program started, it would be a ring of the phone or a knock on the door from, at that time, the director of the Shenandoah dance program, Erica Helm, with, uh, Rose, we've got a broken dancer. Could you help out? And so then I started to realize there's a lot of broken dancers. And so I just started to sign up for um, two, basically two afternoons a week of pro bono care that I would just start to do dancer uh, injury screens and see if I couldn't set up some treatments within the confines of my own schedule. And then if I didn't have time to do full rehabs, which I didn't because I was a full-time faculty, I could refer those dancers to local clinics in town. And then it made me realize, you know, so I had my whole teaching career. I mean, that was its own thing um, that evolved, of course. But I think the thing that I learned with the dancers was, as you've said before, Jacob, that you speak dance now. I didn't speak dance. Just like I think when you get into athletic training, you've got to learn about all the sports. Uh, if you're going to take care of those athletes, you, you can't take care of a base, baseball pitcher and not understand the mechanics of throwing. And as the dancers would come in, they were grateful because they're such an underserved population that I was helping them. But if they told me they got hurt doing a pirouette or a rendezvous, you know, that could have been a French breakfast to me. You know, I didn't know what they were saying. And I think you lose credibility with any patient if you don't understand them. And I think historically then performing artists will go to a health professional who doesn't professional who doesn't understand them. And then the first thing they might describe is the many, many hours that they put in their craft. And that health professional who's underinformed might just say, hey, don't do that. Just don't do that. Well, that's not the answer. Dancers want to dance. Musicians want to play. Runners want to run. So I realized that I didn't understand them. And what was really great was meeting up more and more with the department chair of dance at that time, Erica Helm. And she's put that bug in my ear. We really should have programming um, that, that where you health professionals can understand the terminology and the kinesiology of dance, musician, vocalist, vocalists, and come up with some programming. So one of those great things of being in higher education is every seven years, right, in dog years, you're up for a sabbatical. And so when I was finally up for a sabbatical, one of my approved projects was to create the certificate program in performing arts medicine. And that thing got started. I wrote it on my 2009 sabbatical, and it finally came to fruition with students in it by 2011. Can you talk a little bit more, sorry, a little bit more about that specific program? Because I've mentioned it on here, it was one that I went through, um, and obviously Erica Helm is the one that taught me my French words uh, through her summer class, which was probably the hardest course I've ever taken in grad school. Um, just learning like zero to French in six weeks. Yeah, um, <laughs> for sure. And but you might you wonder, yeah, I'll, I'll explain that program. And also you have to consider, right, here's a... Again, here's a Philly girl who became an athletic trainer and a physical therapist and worked with athletes, gen pop, got into teaching orthopedics, and now realized there's a need, but, but that didn't deem me an immediate specialist. So I had to lean on Erica Helm, the, right, the dance chair, for 
her ideas on what should go on the program. And then much like when I started teaching physical therapy and realized I was under skilled for teaching when I started and I went out and started to read the Maitland books and take the courses, I realized immediately I've got to join the professional organizations for these populations. So I joined PAMA, the Performing Arts Medicine Association, and the International Association of Dance, Medicine, and Science. And so I started going to their conferences and reading their journals and try to get an idea, you know, what 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 do we what is the realm of this? And so with Erica's help, those conferences just talking to dancers, um, we decided we got to start the course with terminology. And so for a one credit course, you know that Jacob, if you don't come from the arts, that can be one of the harder one credit courses in your life is learning all of the uh, the French vocabulary for ballet. But then right, ballet is just one genre in dance. As you know, then you've got to understand the terms for jazz, for modern, for hip hop and so on, right? And then with instrumentalists, hey, I was, um, I'll say forced because there was no talent, but as a child, you know, I had violin lessons. I was awful, you know, but at least there's one instrument I've seen and I understand, but if you're going to treat instrumentalists, there's a lot of instrument families you have to learn and you have to understand the size and shape of those instruments. So the terminology course for a one credit course, if you're not of the arts, has quite a bit of information, right? You've got to get all that terminology so that when that instrumentalist, vocalist, right, if that vocalist says, I'm singing in my head voice or chest voice, you know what that is. When that dancer says, pirouette is my problem, you have a visual, you know what that is. So we start with a uh, online, and by the way, most of this program is online with some live seminars. So we start online with the terminology, and then in the fall, we move right into kinesiology of performing arts. And so now we can take this, the words, and now start describing the movements. Just again, my analogy, if you were working with baseball players, you better understand each phase of throwing. So now we've got to take that terminology and understand what are those movements and what muscles should be working, which ones sometimes work as a compensation that get them into trouble. How many degrees of range of motion does a dancer need for a certain activity, right? The average person, if we were talking about hamstring length and we were measuring that angle through the hip, right? So how much can you flex your, your hip with your knee straight, right? General population should be 80 to 90 degrees. I think the average physical therapist who doesn't treat dance community might not understand that they need 130 degrees plus. You might find that, my God, you have 130 degrees of hamstring length. How abnormal. No, how necessary to be a dancer. So I think you have to take, this is why we need programming for folks. We need to take those normative measures we know for general population and now understand what does the dance community need and so on. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, what happens in that kinesiology class. So the movement, the ranges of motion, the strength required, that using the right motor sequencing, um, really key. And so then we also have a nutrition course for performing artists. And I think we've seen this now even in the sports medicine world in the last, I'll say, decade to be kind about it. But we have really come to realize you are what you eat, that nutrition is so important. Right? That could be, I'm sure, another show that you guys have just have on sports nutrition. But it's so essential that we understand hydration, pregame meal planning, that you're getting the right nutrients, that we're not running into bone mineral density. In the nutrition class, we also throw in uh, looking for um, signs and symptoms of disordered eating, something that is actually fairly prevalent in the ballet community. Again, with some genres of dance, there's a, um, a, an, 
there's a push for aesthetics and thinness. And so we want to have an aesthetic without driving somebody into an eating disorder. So sports nutrition, super important in a performing arts medicine program, right? So that's, we've got summer one and fall one covered. In the spring, then we have a big bread and butter course on sort of all of the common injuries and disorders to the performing arts community. So we've got to go over those disorders and go over the epidemiology. Um, a health professional needs to understand the risk factors, intrinsic and extrinsic for this community. So we go over all of the disorders. So that's year one of the program. Summer two, we have an online evidence-based practice course two credit online course. Um, that one, sometimes if you've come now from a graduate health professions program, you might feel you're pretty solid on understanding just the basics of the evidence. So we, we try not to be redundant in that capacity. We also though know that we're bringing people in who could be older, who were bachelor's educated and they need to get up to speed. So we kind of do a little bit of the nuts and bolts on understanding the research process and evidence. But then the big point of that course is to then start talking about what are the gaps in the literature for the performing arts community? And they're still very gappy. They're like Grand Canyon gappy, right? We still need to know a lot more about this community. So we want to um, you know, make our performing arts medicine students good consumers of the literature, understand the literature, that's the basics, but now understand what are the holes in this community, and then you start to develop a capstone project in that course, right? This is a two-year part-time program, so we're not gonna pummel the students with a full-blown thesis, that would be out of control, but we're trying to find a nice capstone, since there is such a gap in the literature, it's fairly easy to find a nice year-long project that can be done on a part-time basis to really help that community whether it's a literature review, writing up a case study, um, even writing up maybe a particular exercise technique that could you know, help in that community, a la when you did your presentation on kettlebells for dancers as a strength training tool. So we've got research, then we do a clinic, and all my health providers that might be listening to this, we're not talking a full-time clinic the way we might do in PT or PA or AT school, where we're looking at hundreds of hours in a semester. In our clinic course, we're looking at about 30 hours where we help you find a place where you can observe and or treat performing artists and to start to get your hands on in that community. And that course has, while you're in that course, you're still developing your capstone project, but that gives you a little flavor of what it's like to work in that community. And we've got lots of opportunities on campus for our students. We can have people help us cover a dance concert and see what it's like to um, work backstage and do some of the preparatory work to get people ready for a show or be there in case there's an injury. You know, if you guys are Cirque du Soleil fans, sadly, you know, sometimes there's been a performer who's died on Cirque, you know, falling off of some high scaffolding. So we need to have our emergency care preparedness and, and right, being prepared. Using a spine board is using a spine board, but putting a football player on it is a lot different than what if somebody fell into an orchestra pit or fell off a stage and, and you have to think, oh my gosh, we've got to stop the show, curtains have to come down. You know, so there's there's nuance and then again that's the type of things that we're trying to cover in this program. So we've got the clinic and then finally we wrap up with the capstone project and that's a course where you get to complete that research project as well as I'm a firm believer at the graduate level in comprehensive examining. So we love to wrap up programs and make sure you really are solid with what we've taught you so we do a comprehensive written oral and practical exam and so we feel that you know we're the first out the gates with this particular certificate so we had no model to um, 
you know, go after. We knew we didn't want to be as heavy as a full-blown masters that might scare people away. And I think that there's too much to know about this community than teaching it in a weekend seminar. So we've got this kind of stretched out 15 credit thing. And I think we do a pretty good job. And we, as much as I've spoken quite a bit to dance, we do in this program, um, spend our time on the instrumentalists. Our smallest time is probably with vocalists. And we just, we don't want to, again, that, that's such a specialty that we don't want to um, give somebody skills that maybe aren't under their scope, but we try to do a nice job of helping people listen for problems with vocal disorders and understanding when and how to make the appropriate referral for those singers so that they don't start blasting through a nodule while they're singing. But that's the program in a nutshell. I'm just curious how it would differ from a performing arts fellowship, because it sounds like you go through a lot of the same type of curriculum that a fellowship would have, maybe more hands-on than a fellowship would be, but... Yeah, well, we have to think about words like residencies and fellowship, because what happens there is these things, which are super important... Um, are very specific to one discipline. So I know like the American Physical Therapy Association will describe a residency is in a specialized area, but it's still broad, right? Like I might get an orthopedic residency or a pediatric residency. And then to me, a fellowship, if I was a physical therapy, maybe now I've gone through an orthopedic or sports residency, and now I'm getting that even finer subspecialty, a fellowship. And so I, because I haven't tried to create one of those, I don't know the exact hours and length of time. I understand they're usually done within about a year. I think there might be some comparables, but I guess what I would say the big difference is, and it's maybe what's made me almost the happiest about our program is that it's interdisciplinary. So to me, when I think right now fellowship, I think APTAs, because I'm familiar because I'm a PT, and I think about physicians. Um, athletic training is starting to think in terms of residencies as we finally have moved all programs heading towards masters, but we're not quite there yet. But what I've never heard of yet, right, when I think of like a fellowship or residency, is that they're professionals from multi-disciplines coming together. And I think when we created the PAM, I think what inspired me with that is the fact that we've come of age of how important it is to instruct interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. But in my own learning curve of understanding performing arts medicine came from going to the PAMA and I Adams meetings. And that's when I've really learned how rich those meetings are, that the constituents are physicians, chiropractors, ATs, PTs, OTs, massage therapists, personal trainers, dancers themselves, dance educators. Um, I'm like, wow, all these folks that are trying to really, in a scientific way, trying to better the health of this community. And it's made me, I won't say that I don't still like going to my APTA and NATA meetings, but I have become such a fan of going to interprofessional meetings. It's just, it gives you so much broader perspective on life and understanding how we all communicate for a common purpose. So I think there probably are, like if I really analyze someone's fellowship and if someone in PT wanted to do a fellowship in performing arts medicine, I suspect there should be some duplicative information because there should be some standardized skills in these disciplines. But I think what I love about what we're doing is that we've got all these folks together in one room. I, I can I can attest to that. In my uh, cohort, when I went through, we had multiple people that were athletic trainers. We had um, Allison, who's an, who's an occupational therapist, and I think she's going to get her PhD right now. She is. She's at the University of Alberta. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and then of course, Leanne. So fun fact, Rose, uh, we actually have a common connection with Danielle because Karina and Leanne who work at the Houston ballet, uh, I guess, well, Danielle, you just know, you know, Karina, right? You used to, right. I was with Methodist for one of my rotations and shadowed at the ballet and Karina was just going into her place there at that time. Oh, so. wow. Awesome. Yeah. Love, love that Karina. Those girls are great. Yep. But they, they of course went through the, cause Leanne was in my cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just fun to see, I guess the the doors that something like this opens, just connections with different organizations, different people, um, and then just being in more in that environment. I think it's just it was really cool to have a bunch of different professions come together, and then to see that reflected at the international level at like the I Adams conference last year in in Montreal. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I have found like like right now we're just pretty generic. I think too with just exploring our program with. Um, dance musicians and vocalists like at one of the pama meetings i was at i just you know you're at a social at the meeting and i was talking to a guy who i think he was at atpt who was going to try to have his own uh, independent contract service for stuntmen and women in hollywood i'm like yeah you would think those folks get injured right so so you see that there's a lot of ways you can really um think about folks that are underserved and how to use that niche to help them out so now along those lines of this being an underserved community um how can you talk a little bit about the athletic training access that we have at shenandoah and what you guys have done there and how that reflects on a national level like is that something that's that's changing yeah, I think it is changing, and it still ha- has tremendous room for growth. Um, you know, Shenandoah, for those who are listening and you just want to have an idea of size institution, right? We're a liberal arts um, institution um, that has about a student body of 4,000-ish, uh, almost split between graduate and undergraduate. Um, historically, sort of the bread and butter from our roots was the conservatory, or I shouldn't say the conservatory, Shenandoah calls it Shenandoah Conservatory. They don't like the the in there. But um, so here we've had, and by the way, then regarding NCAA athletics, Shenandoah would be a typical division three NCAA program. So, you know, historically, again, if you want to do it on the sports medicine path, it wasn't 30 years ago necessarily so that every college athlete had great athletes access to health care, but that's really exploded, right? And then even public health um, epi- crises such as concussion has really made sure there's formulas from the NCAA to make sure that you've got enough athletic trainers to service your athletes. So now you have, you know, dance and music programs in colleges and, you know, who's serving them? So it just was, um, actually, I should note that there was a gentleman, Mr. Barry Duell, an athletic trainer, a local gentleman in town, who actually, um, prior to me even being hired, was giving a few hours of care to the dance community as well as he started athletic training at the school. So there was a little of this going on when my office ended up moving next to dance. But I just realized it was a cool thing to do and I had a few hours to give because I was writing a program, I didn't have students in it yet. And so, and I realized a need. Then you go to meetings and you start talking about it and you see some schools might have, um, by way of an education program, an interested PT or AT that's helping dancers and so on. But um, uh, for it being formal and an actual FTE assigned to dance departments, that's something that I bet you 
10, 15 years ago, you just weren't seeing. Now, right, that's creeping up. And so I think any institution that has a music or dance program that has a school of health professions is really well poised to do at least something. And when I say it at, at a minimal, at least something, all of us in health professions now, all of our accreditors are telling us you must get your students from the, the different health professions together to do interdisciplinary practice assignments. So to me, if you don't have somebody that has an FTE for your dance or music department, you can already just start there through class assignments. You can coordinate and start doing as a tremendous IPE opportunity to do a wellness screen. Every year, screen your freshmen who come in, see what kind of pre-existing conditions they have. You know, you can already start this, you know, a preventative program and you can maybe then do a, a second one when they're juniors. So I think through OT, AT, PT programs, PA, nursing, you've got a lot of opportunity um, with student projects, um, you know, or student-run clinics to help them out. In a perfect world, we administrators are starting to see that dancers and musicians are at risk, and in some instances, even at a higher injury incident rate than some sports, right? I mean, the incident rate, rate in, the injury incident rate in dance is something like what, 67 to 90%. So knowing that, you know, you should have something in place at your institution. So we are seeing now that I think the profession that's been leaned on the most at the university setting is athletic training. Um, for example, when we started, you mentioned your days at University of Arizona. Um, interestingly, from my Shenandoah PT teaching days in the late 90s, I was the professor for a young lady, um, uh, Jenny, Jenny Wiley now is Jenny Allen when she came to Shenandoah. She came into Shenandoah already as an AT and did our PT program. And she's now one of the assistant head athletic trainers at Arizona. What amazing dance program there. They have now over the years, you know, grown a position, a full-time position for their dance program. It's an athletic trainer and they might even be growing even more so into now the, the whole music community there. So you're seeing schools are starting to see the need. Like it used to be maybe somebody who's like, I just love these people. Maybe because you were a dancer, I'm going to go over there and help them pro bono for a few hours. But then what happens is you give somebody like a little sampling of two days of help and the faculty realize, gosh, you're preventing injuries or we're getting them back to class faster. Once you give them a little taste of that, they expect that. They want that full time. And that's what I think has happened, right? If I had a, you know, I don't know the exact number of schools, but I think people are starting to get that experience of what it's like to have healthcare. And now you're starting to see it's growing in the college setting, mostly with athletic trainers. Just because that model works well, the way that we treat um, with athletes, but certainly I think it's um, an available situation for OT and PT, and especially built into educational programs. So it's growing, collegiate for sure. Now I know you 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 just mentioned OT. I think one of the interesting things, like kind of through my cohort, was being exposed to Allison and kind of talking about her interests, and I didn't realize how important it could be from like a um, orthotic and like modification standpoint, like how involved occupational therapy could be in the music and instrumentalist world. Have you had any, I guess, interaction or exposure to that, Rose? Yeah, so one of the things I've learned through having those first two OTs in our program, we're in your cohort, is how much they brought to the program. And it, it's also, 
if you if you think your program's perfect, any program that you run, you're you're way behind the curve, right? You always have to be growing and evolving. And what we have realized in our PAM program is we're always trying to get better, and we realize we've got to get better with the needs of the instrumentalists. And having the OTs in the curriculum make you acutely aware of things like, I need to get an OT on faculty as an adjunct, because this whole business of um, hand splints and um, the really cool modifications that they will think about to make on an instrument to make it fit somebody's body better, I mean, it's brilliant. And boy, if there's OTs listening to this, I don't want them to think that I'm, I'm certainly not trying to box them into we treat hands and we do splints only because that's a very broad profession. But just an area where um, they have a tremendous skills um, is that to me the, the, the musician instrument interface, how do we get somebody to fit that instrument properly? Like I remember that we had a case study that we used in our curriculum about um, – a uh, viola player in college, um, very, very petite young lady. And so she really size-wise needed a small instrument. But from a faculty perspective, if you're kind of old school and you're like, I'm really interested in the richness of the sound of that viola, the bigger the instrument, the more it resonates, the more beautiful the sound. And so the student was being told to use an instrument bigger than her petite body. And so, yeah, you've got this great resonance from the instrument but you're just crushing this player with you know epicondylalgias and you know nerve entrapment problems from not matching the instrument size so you got two issues there right either it's education to the instructor that you got to bring them down to using the smaller instrument or you need somebody who can adapt to make somebody fit that instrument better and that's still with my own skill set, things that I'm trying to learn more from the people that are in our program and, and new adjunct help that I hope to find to get more specialty in that area. There's just room for a lot. But imagine, just imagine as a general AT or PT that an instrumentalist comes to you, that like that young lady could have come to you and you don't have those skills. You're like, well, I got my usual tools. Let's do some posture correction or take some time off. If you don't have those skills, how are you going to get the faculty member happy, the instrumentalist happy and in playing properly. So you see where we all need each other and we need to be a team. And I know you kind of mentioned that this isn't necessarily our, the strong suit of the program when it comes to um, vocalists, but we do have a um, ENT that comes in and kind of instructs us uh, pretty well on, and I know that you, you, we're both probably laughing a little bit just because we've, you know, we've sat through a couple of his lectures. Um, that, but he, uh, he doesn't fools <laughs> <pools> wisely. <laughs> no. Um, but he's a he's a fantastic ENT and, and really opens your eyes to what you can be seeing or what, what you might be exposed to working with some vocalists. And I, you know, me being me, I was like, I'm never going to really work with a vocalist. So I, I didn't really pay much mind to it. But then we had, uh, I had a, a, a patient come in who wasn't really sure if anybody at our clinic could help them. They'd been having issues, breathing issues when with playing sports for, for years. Um, and they had been diagnosed as having a, a vocal cord dysfunction. And I was like, mm, okay. So I started asking questions that I learned from this program about vocal cord dysfunctions. And he wasn't having pitch breaks. He wasn't having hoarseness, like nothing that, you know, Dr. Chang had like listed down that we should look for. And I ended up referring him over there. And it turns out he didn't have a vocal cord dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, there's situations like that where like just learning some of these really interesting, like niche things, not only does it give you exposure and ability to work with that population, but it also spills over into other aspects of, um, of your patient population that you might treat. And it just yeah. gives you a different perspective on how to approach a case, um, that maybe otherwise you wouldn't know, you wouldn't have thought about. Yeah, absolutely. I guess as far as the the program itself, where do you where do you see it going? Because I know it's been it's been growing significantly over the years, but where do you where do you see it in five years from now? I the performing arts again. It's a fifteen credit program. We now are exploring a um, a collaboration in our school of education at Shenandoah has a variety of um, types of masters in education. And they now have a master's of science in education called Master of Science Education Individualized Focus. So they are working with those of us who have graduate certificates and by adding on 12 credits of education courses, you could now morph your PAM certificate actually into a master's degree. Now the education courses are cool because we might have folks that are um, you know, in university setting. And so they might find that, yeah, let me just round this thing out. So a nice thing that's happening is we've got the ability to take these credits and combine them in another area of the institution for a full master's. So that's a growth that literally we're pi- piloting that this summer for the first, the first student that will be coming through to do that. Uh, another growth area in performing arts medicine is, apart from always, like I said, programs should always be appraised through lots of metrics, right? Student exit evaluations, alumni surveys, employer surveys. So you always got to figure out what you're doing right, what you could do better. So that's always, to me, any program always has that going on. But then I think, okay, after a while, we will have a lot of alumni out who that's done. So what else can we do for them? And I'd like to actually see the Division of Athletic Training start to um, uh create a uh, school of continuing education. A school probably wouldn't be the right word. You're not going to have a school within a division. Like these are just academic words, but I suspect we might have some type of division athletic training, institute of continuing education. And I'd like now to start building in um, either live seminars or online courses to really even specialize even more. And so it could be that uh, maybe you want to really focus on pirouette, like you could have a very individualized course on a very individualized skill, or maybe we also want to start looking at, as I said, we've gone traditional with dance, instrumentalists, vocalists, um, rhythmic gymnastics, figure skating, um, right? We can start looking at some of these areas. I would consider these performing arts as well. And so I also envision that we might start looking at these specialized populations And since they are so specialized, maybe doing these by way of continuing education units. And again, in our true spirit, in an interdisciplinary fashion, but you could start taking these seminars, like maybe, um, you know, again, maybe you're a PT in Loudoun Cowden here in uh, Virginia. I believe there's a big uh, ice rink with a figure skating school. So, hey, why not understand those patients better? Take our continuing education course. And so we can find some folks that work in that area. What's nice is, you know, by being a member of PAMA and NI Adams, I have networked with some pretty cool folks. So I've, I know an orthopedic surgeon who's been um, one of the folks that helps with the U.S. figure skating team. So the idea is we would keep reaching out to experts in these nuanced areas and maybe try to build continuing education for our graduates to keep getting more and more on top of what they've got. And like anything else, as evidence changes, 
an opportunity to see, hey, we might have taught you this thing five years ago, but now we know that's you know the way we've been with concussions. We've gone right from, in my era, hey, do you see these two fingers? Great, go back and play. So, oh my God, don't do anything for three weeks to, okay, there's got to be, you know, so as the evidence keeps changing, you need to instruct. So I think our our five-year plan would be to keep doing that by way of continuing education would make the most sense. And then lastly, right, we've got a new program we're launching in July, same model, largely hybrid online with some live seminars, 15 credits across two years, same exact model, but we're calling this um, the Graduate Certificate in Performing Arts Health and Fitness. And so what we're doing with this one, many times when I go to my national, um, if I go to iAdams, I pay for a marketing table and I've got brochures out and everybody's kumbaya until that massage therapist or exercise physiologist comes up to me and says, why can't I enter your PAM program? And the way we had set the PAM program up was you did have to be a licensed health professional who somehow does some type of diagnosing in their scope of practice. And that's why we allow the people in it that we do. So we have to then say no to a PTA, right, a physical therapy assistant, or no to a, a kinesiotherapist. And those folks have largely sometimes expressed their dissatisfaction at my marketing booth. And I'm like, yeah, well, we just have to reshape. It's mainly one or two courses in the PAM that weren't appropriate for that population. So with a little reshape, We've now got a new curriculum that's coming out that maybe I am a certified personal trainer who's entrepreneurial, right? I, I strength train my athletes of various sports, but I want to get into this new community. So they now will take the same terminology course, but they're not going to have an injury diagnosis right course, right? Because that's not their scope. But we're going to fill that, ta-da, cue Jacob, with a um, strength and conditioning and fitness course that we're hoping that you'll be the lead faculty on for that population. So we can get um, really for this, I vision dancers themselves. We were talking about what, what's that broken dancer do when he or she leaves their BFA and that maybe they don't want to go to PT school. Maybe that person with a BFA wants to open up their own dance studio or their own Pilates studio. And maybe if they had this other certificate, that would really help in their marketing and their community to show all the mom and dads of these new future little youngster dancers that, hey, that clinic, that studio over there compared to that studio over there, this person has a certificate in performing arts, health and fitness. They've got some nutrition knowledge. They've, they're they not going to injure my kid accidentally because they're well studied on what they do. So I envision this new program for dancers themselves, for dance educators to bring back into their university setting, music educators, the strength training crowd, um, and talk about how rich will right, that on-campus weekend be if you got that whole group together. And I, I'm even visiting on those weekend seminars if I do them on the same weekend with the health professionals, much like I, Adams, and Pamela, we got them all in the same room together. So now we've got dancers themselves getting their certificate. We've got the health professionals collaborate right that's where it's at so that's where we're heading so you know phds that's like maybe that's not in my radar yet or anything like I'm not, i can't <laughs> that's too much but you know and i hope we get copied a little bit right i don't want anybody to copy what i'm doing and put me out of business but i hope that we get copied in so much that just like i said way back when i was a teenager and went to one of the first sports medicine centers in the country and then in the 70s, sports medicine blew up as a thing. 
I want performing arts medicine to blow up as a thing. So I hope there are multiple certificates and degrees and this community has the same, you know, attention that our sports folks do. That's the dream, right? That's the goal. That sounds incredible. And I'm sure Jacob can agree with me that I hear from many of my young dancer patients that they feel like their teacher doesn't understand injuries or they don't understand why they're not getting back to point or jumping quickly. And I think if dancers or dance educators had an opportunity to go through a program like that, parents and their kids would have a lot more faith in the studios. Um, And with dancers knowing so much about their bodies, they're always wanting more information. So I think that would be an incredible opportunity for them, you know. Yeah. And Danielle, it's interesting. Um, Again, I'm not going to broad brush, but I am going to, there'll be like a little stereotype coming out here, but I think about old school coaches or even modern, again, I'm liking to think the more enlightened people are, they don't do dumb things, you know, like deprive athletes of water, you know, water, a sign of weakness, right? Now we're going back old school, right? Remember like athletes, old, old school, take these salt tablets, no drinking, you know, okay, (laughs) not such a great idea, but I also think, um, there's an evolution in music and dance education as well. And the evolution has to be just science. And I think that I understand from sometimes what I see from, again, I don't want to say older because I'm older, but you might see from an old school dance faculty or uh, instrumentalist like, hey, what, what's this performing arts program you got going on there, Rose? When I learned, you know, when I learned to play the cello, um, you weren't serious about your craft if you didn't practice two hours straight you know, blah, 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 no breaks. Otherwise you weren't serious and you weren't going to go places. I'm like, right. Um, you know, there's things that people need to understand. An athlete, a, a musician's body, the body's the body, right? And if you can't be doing this all day on a violin for two hours and no breaks, right? We always see his facets closing on one side, muscles too long on this side. And so I find that there's um, a lot of um, room for education and I'm just going to say old school, not because I don't want to paint every faculty who's old or and so on. But there's a there's definitely a thing there, just like I've seen with coaching, that there's a lot of room for change there in that community. And I hope these programs really start to help that happen. Do you see any particular barriers that we might need to think about, like as the field of performing arts medicine expands? Um, I guess sometimes you'll hear. I mean, I think sometimes we worry. Um, I mean, boy, we worry it with budgets for a lot of things. And now, um, yeah, I can't even, you know, with COVID, I don't even know what to say, right? Because just just budgets and businesses, like, wow, you know, hopefully things will all rebound in a year, year and a half. But I guess what I'm getting at is, right, you know, the arts aren't necessarily, uh, I wouldn't, we wouldn't accuse the arts of being overfunded in the school system, right? You'll sometimes hear of budget cuts. What are some of the things that often go is the music teacher, the this, and now talking about funding someone to take care of the musicians. I think that's where we get ourselves, you know, there's some issues and challenges out there. It's going to be funding for sure. Do you, do you see any ways of potentially mitigating that? Yeah, well, I think that um, you have to study things. It's, you know, you always, you just can't yell and scream, you know, why, why don't, why doesn't the dance department have this person? I think you've got to start collecting data and you've got to start looking at, you know, 
how many classes do dancers miss? Um, you know, you've got to start showing some evidence and, and also if your school has a reputation for not caring, taking care of people as somebody may be preferring to go to another school than your school. So you've got to speak administrator speak and start to show the value, you know, the, the not missing the class time, the students wanting to come to your institution. And then I think you've got to get creative with funding. Um, you don't like to put everything on the backs of students, um, but if you can, without overdoing it, like even if you build in a student fee, something that's just reasonable that's rolled into their tuition, um, you know, some type of wellness fee as, as part of being in the conservatory so that assures that you're going to get a wellness screen, treatments on campus up to so many weeks. I think that, that people might find that that's money well spent and that could be going into funding that athletic trainer or physical therapist. But like I said, you don't want to over put it on the students' backs. And then you should also consider as we have across athletic training at large is can we find ways to ethically bill in school settings for what we do, run things through insurance so that that money's coming back to subsidize that those people are there. So I think there's ways um, we got to just consider. And also sometimes we're now, right, even in athletic training, we're looking at the model of, you know, should the athletic trainers be hired under athletics or should they be hired under the student health system? And that might be an area as well to look at that, you know, maybe the the dance department's like, we don't have funding for that, but maybe the student health, you know, and in Arizona, that's a large, they have actually have a quite a robust student health clinic. And maybe that person, you know, people from there could be assigned so many hours to, you know, schools of music and so on. So there will be hurdles, but I also think we've got to come up with data to prove our worth. And then we've also got to come up with creative means to fund those people. And I think we have to stop ignoring it. I mean, we should... We should want all of our students in a college setting, if I'm using college as an example, whether they're a non-athlete, right, or whether they're an athlete or whether they're a performer, that they have appropriate access that's specific to their needs, right? Same way we should be able to have disabled students on our campus campus, and have safe roads to be on with their wheelchairs and access in their dorms. And many of these things need work in higher education, you know, and so we can do it, right? We're smart enough to do it. For someone that's trying to get into the arts, mm. what types of things should they do, uh, I guess, to, to better cater to that population? Okay. Sure. I mean, obviously, these uh, art certificate is out there. Maybe not everybody wants to um, be in it for, you know, the two-year, 15-credit situation. I think first and foremost, though, you have, you have to understand – um, your people. So if you're, again, I, I'll just again equate it back to when I had limited manual therapy skills and suddenly I realized I was responsible for instructing that. That, that just doesn't go together. You can't be taking a paycheck to teach manual therapy when you're not competent in it yourself, right? So if you don't have the skills because you came from a non-arts background, then what are the things you got to do? Join one of the organizations. If you are only going to treat dancers, I would join IADAMS. If I want something broad and I can only afford one organization, join PAMA. Go to the meeting, subscribe to their journal. Um, start to talk to dancers. Go to classes as an observer. Learn to speak. Like you could do it on your own if you don't have the the ability to you know to pay for programming, but you've you do not. Just decide, here's an emerging area, right? There's nothing, there's no law against if I own my own PT practice to slap on a brochure that I 
come come dancers to my clinic. Don't do that if you don't have those skills, right? So join the organizations, um, do these things. So, but I think because when you look at the early on people in performing arts medicine, um, P, uh, particularly the PTs and ATs, they were former dancers turned PTs. Okay, but that's not sustainable, right? That we we talked about that before you put the record button on. You don't have to be in the NFL to treat an NFL football player. That's not sustainable. That's not logical. So, but you've got to learn to speak. So, I think there are certainly resources. There's books. There's journals. There's organizations. But but I would hope you'd find us and realize that this was a worthy endeavor um, to come do a program, you know, of this nature. I mean, I can, I can vouch. I think it was totally worth it. Um, but I'm, I'm also kind of biased, but, uh, I'm uh <laughs> you, you would crush Erica's uh, terminology course. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd have to sit there because, like, I I took it when I was going through, I think, second summer of AT school. So I would – I'd have AT class in the morning. I would go to a PT clinic for my afternoon to get my full-time clinic hours in. And then I'd come home, do whatever homework, study for tests, and then I would open up one of Erica's PowerPoints. And the quizzes were – she would just have a video of someone dancing, and she would just at random points go, and what is this? And I'm like, I'm like rewinding the QuickTime video, and I'm like, what, what is she talking about? What, is, what am I looking at? And it's like, because yeah. someone would do like a, a four-piece combo or something, and I'm like, I don't know what she wants me to say. Yeah. She sends you feedback back, and you're like, wait, you wanted that? You know, because I wrote out some like crazy like list of everything that I saw, and she was like, no, I just wanted you to say like, relevé. I'm like. Yeah, that that course was hard. You would, Danielle, you would totally crush it though. Yeah. Because um, you funny. actually know these things. It's funny though. I've been working with a local gymnastics club here in Houston, and I did gymnastics as a little kid, but I was pretty bad. Um, and I kind of fell into dance because I was bad at gymnastics. And even learning the terminology of gymnastics has been really challenging. And I think gymnastics and figure skating kind of fall on the same line with are they performing arts and I would say they are you know but even those sports have very confusing terminology too you know yeah that takes you back to like if you're watching the olympics and they start describing you know wait was that a triple axle or a triple toe loop what what right so you got to know your stuff right if you're going to be credible with the people you treat you have to understand them i just think that's a basic premise all right, so Rose, rapid fire question for you, completely unrelated to dance. What is the best cheesesteak place in Philly? Double Sandro's in Rocks- Roxborough. Okay, so that's not even on the because like when I hear most people argue, it's always like Pat's or Gino's or sometimes people throw like Tony Luke's. Yeah. What makes Del Sandro special? And by the way, those three are all great, but they sometimes they get a little too touristy. D'Alessandro's is the whole experience. And first of all, you got to understand the meat. Is the meat uh, choppy chop really small or are there kind of big pieces? And that's my criticism of Pat's and Gino's. The bigger the pieces, sometimes they can be dry. No bueno. So you, you, the meat's better at D'Alessandro's. And then it's just the experience because it's sort of like a – oh, it's like almost part of like a small row house. And uh, the people are lining up 
and then outsiders have figured out that this probably really is the secret best place and they get in there and they don't realize it's cash only. And then, you know, we have perhaps a reputation for being a little surly in Philadelphia. And then just to see the patrons get berated for not having cash and kind of being pushed back into that line. It <laughs> has an amusement factor to it as well. But <laughs> go to D'Alessandro's. You won't be disappointed. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world? It's very open-ended, but what's your best piece of advice? Did you say smart and driven? Smart and driven. It's just a- any old college student going into the real world? Sure. Um, I think that you have to find your passion. Uh, anything you do, if you don't love it, it's hard to bring your A-plus game. And I really believe in bringing your A-plus game. It's going to make you happy. And it's going to make all the difference to the people, whether you're teaching them, treating them, coaching them, you know, you own a store, then have the best store. But if you're not, if you're not in it to win it, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people that you're going to interact with. Rose, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? I would say my SU email. So that's, as you know, my name, R Schmig, R S C H M I E G at SU for Shenandoah dot edu. Thank you everybody for tuning in this week where we spoke with Rose Schmig of Shenandoah's athletic training and performing arts medicine programs. If you guys have any questions, complaints, concerns, or a topic that you'd like to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. And then if you guys want to reach out to Danielle, she's the nice PT. What's your, uh, what's your contact? So my Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle uh, Nice underscore DPT. Oh, you are the nice PT. That's she awesome. She is the nice PT. Yeah, that's cool. And then you can, you can find me on my poor quality rehab memes page at TMD underscore the movement docs. But thank you guys all for, for listening. And remember, as always, don't break a leg.